have our shit. We just decide to package ours up in a pretty pink bow. And that's what Shiki's all about. Where Chic meets Cheeky, creating the perfect cocktail. I had been wanting to reach out for so long. And mm-hmm. honestly, everyone that comes on to this podcast, like, mm-hmm. I just have a special place in my heart. And I need mm-hmm. you to know that you've always been somebody that I've looked up to for so many reasons. And at school, Risa, you were always that person that no matter what type of mood I was in, when I saw you, you just literally took me from down here. To like, <laughs> it didn't matter what was happening. Like, I just always remember when you left, I just always was like, why'd you have to leave? Like, you, know, like, you really are that type of person. So um, it's just a huge honor to be able to sit down and talk to you because like I said, I haven't had the chance to be able to sit down and really learn about you know, your childhood and yeah. I got to meet your sister at school, but I don't know, you know, I don't know anything yeah. about her. Like I can't wait to hear yeah. about everything. So thank you so much for doing this with me. Of course. I'm excited. Yay. Um, so yeah, I guess we, a good starting point is obviously talking about like your childhood, like where did you grow up and yeah, your family life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm an immigrant. My parents are immigrants. Um, crazy story. My dad, my family moved here because my dad essentially was like the first person in his family to not get into this like really prestigious school. Um, and all of his family was like politicians and in academia. And he didn't get into the, this like really crazy college. So He was like, you know what? I really like trees and I really always wanted to work in the lumber business. So I'm going to do that. Like I'm going to go work in the lumber industry. And so he did. And then he moved to Indonesia and lived in the rainforest for a couple of years. And then he got sent to a work trip in, of all places, to St. Charles, Missouri. Um, And he was like, he really fell in love with the place. And he was like, I know that like, after I'm done with my years in the rainforest in Indonesia, like I'm going to come back and live here. So he did. And then he started his own company. Um, And so, yeah, so he like, he just retired this year, but he had his own company, like exporting lumber to clients in Japan. And so when he was on vacation, like visiting Japan again, he met my mom, like coincidentally literally in a cave in the ocean and (laughs) yeah isn't that crazy that's insane I know and then they fell in love and the rest is history my mom moved here with him so I was born in Japan um, because my mom's parents insisted that I be born there so I moved here when I was one and I've lived in St. Charles Missouri all my life and then little Yuri was born two years later um but yeah, I grew up in a very, very white town, city, town. Yeah. Um, and I went to school. I think I was the only Japanese student in my entire school district. Um, I played tennis, which was a pretty white sport. And then, yeah, like all of my experience kind of was very surrounded by white spaces. I think, I think it took me a while to kind of like realize how that affected me, but it definitely did. And I definitely am like trying to understand that still and like reclaim that part of myself. Yeah, absolutely. So 
you were born in Japan or you- I was born in Japan yeah so I'm a I'm a Japanese citizen and I have a green card so I'm a permanent resident of the U.S. of A. Gotcha okay so then you guys when did you guys move over to Missouri how old were um you? I was one so my dad had like bought a house here and was living here and then when he went back for vacation he met my mom and then she like came to America and then um, she went back to Japan to have me because um, my grandparents requested that. And then we came back over here to like be with my dad. Gotcha. Okay. And then was Yuri born over here or she was? Yeah, born- Yuri was born here. Okay. Gotcha. Wow. That's really cool. Okay. So you're growing up and what was your, what was your community like at home? Like your school, what, what type of school did you go to? I went to a public school. I'm a proud product of a American public school. Me too, girl. Uh, <laughs> hell yeah. Public schools are the best. Um, yeah, I think like it was interesting. I I still remember actually the first day of preschool, um, my mom sent me to school with this uh, little name tag and it had my name on it written in English broken up into syllables and that's the only English I knew um, <laughs> so but I don't know I never really thought of myself until I was a little bit older as like oh I'm this like only Asian student in this like really white environment but I definitely felt that a lot like throughout elementary school through elementary school Mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about uh that article that you wrote and you shared it's for anyone that's listening that hasn't had the chance yet um you can find Reese on Instagram I'll link it down in the description but she has a really touching and powerful essay in her bio that she wrote herself and she also shares some great resources um that you guys can you know go to read and follow the articles and she shares a bunch of videos and just some great resources to um, help with education um, on this topic. So can you just talk a little bit about that article? Was that something about that feeling of whenever you were in school? I just didn't know when that started or if it had started a long time ago. Yeah. So for like context, I like from the beginning of COVID, there's been a really big rise in violence against Asian American communities um, for a lot of reasons, but a lot of some of them being these like racist and false narratives around like Asians bringing COVID uh, to the US. Um, But yeah, I think it was, I was really frustrated because nobody was talking about it and this violence Um, And these anti-Asian sentiments are not something that is new in our country. So I wanted to kind of like use my voice and explain how, first of all, there's not one Asian American experience. Like there are so many different Asian American experiences and identities. And, but I wanted to shed some light on what mine looked like and how um, that like Asian and anti-Asian sentiment had affected me in my life. So I kind of talked about how um, when I was in elementary school for Pearl Harbor Remembrance Day, I was the only Japanese student in the entire school district and they would commemorate the, the holiday, I guess, um, in re- remembrance of the people whose lives were lost in Pearl Harbor. Um, 
but I felt really sad and uncomfortable because that was the only thing about Japan that I had ever learned from K through fifth grade. And every year I was so uncomfortable and like sad. And I, I think back then I didn't really understand what the feeling was, but I definitely felt alienated. I felt like a very strong feeling of like otherness, like, oh, why is everyone looking at me? Like, why, why do I feel guilty for like being associated with this? We never learned about Japanese internment. We didn't ever learn about like Chinese exclusion act or the murder of Vincent Chin or other really important Asian American history. Um, So that information was very siloed and it really painted my idea of like, oh, okay. To be Asian in this environment is to be kind of like villainized and seen in this singular perspective. Um, And that really shaped the way that I developed my relationship with my heritage and my culture. And I don't know, for a long time, I think there were a lot of other colliding factors, like very like Western and American beauty norms and stuff like that. But I really distanced myself from everything related to Japanese culture. So like language, food, like, honestly, like everything. yeah can I can I ask you like when that started um I think it's so subconscious like I can't really pinpoint ever feeling like oh this was the moment but I remember kind of early on like I guess earlier I said I didn't really think early on I was like different but now that I think about it I remember in preschool um everyone's parents were um like packing them like goldfish snacks but my my parents packed me like real like fish like dried fish and people were like shook they were like what is happening like what is this <laughs> and I actually kind of vaguely remember this and being like oh my god do people not eat this year um <laughs> Um, and I remember I I would like ask my parents to like not pack me like I would is so like it makes me so sad to think about this but I would always tell my mom to like pack me quote like normal food for lunch and by normal I meant like American food um and I was like really embarrassed when like my mom would pack me things that weren't like mainstream American cuisine yeah oh yeah I um I actually just want to say like for a long time I was always like I'm very open to trying different types of food. It's not that, mm-hmm. but I think it was, if anyone remembers Dr. Shibler from Providence College, I don't know if you know him, but he had his daughter come in and she talked about all these different places that she's been and all the different mm-hmm. types of food that she's tried. And one of them was pig brains, but she didn't know it was pig brains. And she loved it until she knew it was pig brains. And it was just like, basically her entire presentation was just, to kind of point out, like, stop saying that food is gross or, like, a food is weird. Yeah. You don't know, like, I don't know. Just if you knew it was in our food, like, that's <laughs> gross. Like, yeah, exactly. Um, I try my best to be aware, of, too, of saying I know it's not, like, a really, probably a really sensitive thing. But I think, like, just saying, oh, that food is so weird, especially when yeah. I'm younger and you're hearing that, it's probably, mm-hmm. like, like you said, like you probably felt like you need to have normal lunches, whatever. Yeah. And it's like, we're thinking about, oh, do I think it's weird because it's not, it's foreign to me. And like, if that's the case, like where, where do the influences of the food that I'm eating come from? Exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah, so it seems like that started earlier on. And I want to talk about, like, this is kind of random, but it just made me mm-hmm. think. I have a sister, and my sister is, like, my literal best friend. Like, when we were younger, though, we didn't really get along that well. But as we got older, we've gotten so much closer. <laughs> I didn't know if – um, what's your relationship with Yuri? Oh, my God. We literally used to fist fight. Like, we – I'm not kidding when I say we used to fist fight. We used to, like, drag each other <laughs> down the hall, like, with – Oh my gosh, it was so bad. Like, I, we would grab each other by the hair. I remember one time <laughs> I sprayed Febreze in her eyes. <laughs> and it was like typical, like, sibling things. And I was like, you know that meme that's like, uh, like letting your siblings do whatever so that they don't tell your parents? Like, I literally remember being like, spray it back, spray it back in my face. Just like, don't tell mom. I, I swear, just don't tell her. Just, you can spray me with however much Febreze you want. <laughs> like, but that was our relationship. Um, honestly, I was so mean (laughs) until like college and we still fight a little bit, but like, we're really close now. Yeah. We're just very different. Like she's super not affectionate. And I'm like, like, if I ever get a text from her saying like, I love you. I'm like, how many shots did you take tonight, Yuri? Like how blocked out are you right now? And then she'll just pretend like it never happened the next morning. So that's our relationship. That's so funny. I feel like maybe, I don't know, maybe that's just who, who she is. But also I feel like my sister and I were like that too. When we were young, yeah. we did not get along. Like I <laughs> downplayed it. I'll just exploit myself right now. Like I'll admit it. I was really that annoying little sister that held everything against my sister that I knew. Mm. And she just like wanted to torment me. Like it was so <laughs> funny. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I was curious because I was like, so at this point in like, I, I guess when you're younger, it's different when you're not like, you don't, re- most sisters don't really get along when they're younger, but now we mm-hmm. create them. Yeah, for sure. That you could like, you know, talk about this stuff with or relate with, or if it mm-hmm. was something that was, you know, came out later on. Yeah. And for sure, because like, obviously Yuri has her own experiences and I can't speak on behalf of that but like going to the same undergrad like it's really interesting to like know the same people and like be in the same environment relatively um and experience that in the same ways but also in different ways yeah absolutely so speaking of Providence College uh for anyone that's listening Risa went there too um I already told you guys I went there and this is where we crossed paths but I know we talked a little bit about this, but I really do want to learn more about that class you were telling me that changed mm. your life. Yes. Ooh. Shout out to Charlotte, um, who is my professor for this class called The Power of Whiteness that I took um, my spring semester of senior year. And I remember I was reading through the course catalog and I was like, hmm, what should I take for my, I think it's like a diversity credit. I don't really know. Um, but it was like learning about the historical and social implications of race and um, the white identity or something like that. And I was like, oh, shit, I have to take this. I've also like I've always been really interested in race and identity just because I think junior year, I was really coming to terms with the fact that I'm like, oh, I am someone who's been raised really in the in between in this gray zone of like Japanese and American culture. 
And that's undoubtedly shaped the way that I see and experience this world. And I think I've had whitewashed, whitewashing um, is kind of like, like doing things that to like blend in more to white culture. Like for me, it was like not speaking Japanese, not eating Japanese food and just not really talking about my Japanese identity and like kind of ignoring and distancing that. But I had been living that way for so long that it was normal for me. And I was finally starting to reclaim that uh, junior year. So I became really interested in, you know, these different experiences and how race and ethnic identities influence the world that we live in. So I took this class and it really did change my life. Like it, it, we learned so much about how to like fundamentally critique and question everything. Um, so for example, the first film that we watched was called Mickey Mouse Monopoly. And it was talking about how, um, it's a documentary that talks about the very racial messages that a lot of Disney films, um, portray and like express and spread to the world. Um, and it was really interesting. For example, it was saying how, like in the beginning of the original, Fuck, what was that movie? Oh, wow, well, I'm not supposed to cuss on here. Um, oh, you can cuss, I cuss all oh, the time. Oh, sweet, okay, cool. <laughs> uh, what was the one with the genie in the bottle? Oh, Jasmine. Is that what the movie's called? Um, oh, wait, Aladdin, Aladdin. Aladdin, Aladdin. Yeah, they say the, in the original film, like the opening song to it says like really, really backwards and racist things about Middle Eastern people and like, really like portrays them as barbaric and like people who can't be tamed and our professor was explaining how like these very casual um expressions and like portrayals of certain kinds of cultures and people are actually really dangerous because when we think about it like I probably didn't even notice that but I was definitely consuming that right and we're so young especially because Disney is seen as this like um like family centric brand that's supposed to be like all like happiness and smiles but it's definitely if you think about like who's creating Disney films so it's probably a lot of old white men who are in that corporate area um and it just made me realize like whoa there's a lot of media out there that we kind of like assume to be like benign and not harmful but is actually definitely shaping the world that we see um and that was just one example but there were just so many great examples of how like capitalism and racism um intertwine and how that has created like the world that we see now so we we learned a lot about like history we learned about history not from a Eurocentric view, which is really new to me. Like this was seriously the first class that I learned about like Japanese internment and Chinese Exclusion Act. And um, honestly, I'm gonna like grab my notebook. In sophomore year, I like fell in love with philosophy and I was like, this is awesome. I've never, like my brain is being stretched out because it's being forced to think in ways that I never even thought I could think about. Um, and my favorite professor, Dr. Arroyo, I really wanted, I told him that I really wanted to do like an independent research project. 
um, something related to philosophy. And he was so super supportive. So the summer, um, actually, yeah, the summer after junior year, I devoted my entire like summer to working on this project. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to do something that studied the intersection of Japanese and American culture, because it's something that is very relevant to me in my life. Um, and I was like, how can I study this in an academic manner? So I was became really interested in like cross-cultural ethics between um, East and West and like Japan and America specifically, and how the value systems that underlie these two societies affect the concrete practices that we see there. So all that was super abstract, but I essentially wanted to see like, how do America and Japan think differently? How do the people in these societies think differently in terms of like, what's what right, what's important, what's wrong, moral distinctions, and how does that affect what these societies look like and operate like? So I wanted to dive a little bit deeper. And so I became really interested in early education systems because when I was younger, um, I would visit Japan growing up and my parents would put us in school for like three weeks because they have school during the summer. Um, and I remember, I just thought it was like the craziest thing. Like during lunch, we would serve food to each other and then we would clean together. And then like no one got up until everyone finished eating and like everything was just so together. And they don't have janitors because kids clean their own classrooms together at the end of the day. Um, and it's so different from how schools operate here. Um, so that was kind of like my inspiration and my starting point. Um, but I wanted to make this, pro this project for me was like, it was so much more than something academic. Like it really was a study into like my own life and thinking about like how these differing value systems affected me and how living at the intersection of Japanese and American cultural norms affected my development and my experiences and how I, I see the world. Um, so I started with kind of a deep dive into the specific values that underlie like East and Western cultures in terms of education and child development. And I realized that like one of the big sets of values in Japan was like social collectivism. So the idea that we are all part of a group um, and like success and well-being kind of is directly related to how successful and like healthy and happy that group is. Um, and so by group, it kind of means like the whole country, mm -hmm. honestly. Um, it's very like group thinking. And America is very individualist. So it's like every person for themselves, like super kind of meritocracy based so like I everything that I achieve is like attributed to myself kind of way specifically tied to that for example like Japan's a lot less socially collectivist than other Asian countries but like relative to the U.S. it's still a lot more like group thinking rather than individualist so I kind of I traced how those specific value systems influence practices in schools. And I realized that because they're, because Japan is very much more socially collective, 
the practices that we observe in early education tend to follow around these ideals of like working together and like promoting well-being for the group. Um, and so I realized that like this practice of, you know, like making lunch together and serving each other and um, cleaning together was all promoting this idea of like, this school is our shared space where we learn together and grow together, um, where we rely on each other to get these tasks done. Um, and another big thing is like, so I laid out how these values affect like specific practices. So like from the ones that I analyzed in the Japanese section were like lunches and um, um, like how classes are done. So a lot of Japanese schools, like you don't, finish a curriculum until everyone passes, which is really different from the US. And then like recess is a really big um, thing in Japanese school because a lot of Japanese people see like play as a really big vehicle for interpersonal development. Um, and even in like, this is so cute, but like even in like kindergarten and preschool, teachers don't intervene when little kids fight because they think it's a really good opportunity to learn these interpersonal skills um, of conflict resolution. And I think that speaks volumes to this idea that like this moral development and this like interpersonal development is seen as a very, very integral part of um, childhood growth. Um, and then the other big thing that's different between America and Japan is that in Japan, the child is seen as like this little human of like untapped growth and untapped potential. Whereas in America, like enlightenment um, ideals kind of influence this idea of like the child being someone that's like weak and needing to be protected. So like, it was so crazy to kind of like take those very abstract things that we think of like value systems and see them embedded into these very concrete practices that we see in real life. Um, and then another big part of that paper, so that was like the research portion of it, which was super interesting. Um, and I studied like the history of schools in Japan and the structure and organization and how they came to be um, and how they like shifted after World War II. Um, but another big part of it was like a narrative piece where I talked about my own upbringing and my experience going to those schools and going to school in America and how it was like a very interesting narrative piece on kind of me re like reflecting on my trips to Japan and reflecting on the idea that all throughout my childhood, even though I never actually lived in Japan, I always felt such a strong sense of belonging to that society and to that culture and that heritage and the language and the food. Um, and as part of my research project, I went to Japan um, my junior year over winter break to study a little bit more and to really like, I don't know, experience Japan as an adult. And that trip really like changed my life in terms of the cultural significance of like writing like going to, to that space where I was born like while I was doing this really really personal project at a time where I was finally coming to terms with the fact that like wow I literally spent 20 years of my life like distancing myself from my heritage and like not being able to really express and appreciate my cultural identity and then finally going coming to like peace with that and like 
being in Japan and being able to hear people speak my language and like see people who look like me like everywhere it was just like so I don't know it just felt very much like um like a coming of age experience and that was when I realized like wow education is something that's so sacred and so so special because it can really help develop us as as like people and see more clarity into our experiences and yeah it was really it was just really meaningful yeah uh, wait Risa I just so want to say that I watched um I have to get my the canopy oh my god canopy is so good I have to get a membership or however you said it worked you can get a library card mm-hmm. yes so I have to do that to watch the other ones but I've watched all the other resources and then I need to send you this oh, documentary I think it's like I think it's good the stuff that I texted you about, but I think it's very Mm -hmm. surface level. So Mm -hmm. I think it's a good start for people to spark curiosity. And the guy who's like, who's explaining everything is very, um, not intriguing. He's very engaging. So I feel like it Mm -hmm. might be a good resource to share with people too. The one that I watched. Yeah. I had, I didn't learn any of that stuff until I watched it. Right. Especially it's called interim camps inter internment japanese internment yeah god i so, shocked yeah. basically like i don't want to draw a parallel here cuz i could this is just you know correct me if i'm wrong but it just was like legitimately like the nazis in america yeah and it's something that we don't talk about because how can we i mean it's so so easy to uphold this idea of like america the great and america the all powerful and like always good if we don't talk about the atrocities that were committed on our soil right like we never talk about the fact that america was founded on stolen land and indigenous people are still and have been treated so poorly and like even with vaccine distribution like there are so many like people who haven't been able to get vaccinated because like access to re- to those kinds of resources are limited in certain areas. And like all of this is very, very interrelated, but I think it was really interesting because one of the most fundamental parts of this c- class was like, I really felt like I was getting a more holistic understanding of American history. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just saw how much it was edited to fit this like, very white supremacist um, theme back when we were learning it as kids. Um, So I'm literally just like looking through the syllabus and it was so crazy to like read um, like all of these really crazy documentaries like Latino Americans, Prejudice and Pride, Latinos Beyond the Real. Oh, we talked a lot about like Latinx and Latino like portrayals in the media um and how um and then like Edward Said on Orientalism how this idea of like Orientals came to be um and like like the villainization of Arabs after 9-11 was a really big thing that we we learned about um constructing the terrorist threat like why it was so useful for upholding white supremacy to like villainize Middle Eastern people after 9-11 and say like these are the enemies like this is all these bad people um 
but yeah and it's it's so relevant to what we're seeing today because essentially like um the scapegoating of asian americans and asian people um and like the blaming for covid and everything it's just to keep it's to pit racial groups and categories against each other and to uphold this idea of white supremacy yeah. um so yeah yes speaking of that I want to hear what you have to say about because all of that stuff was new to me so I'm still mm -hmm. learning and it's no excuse but I'm just saying that you could probably talk more about it but from what I understood about the model minority like it, it puts you got it puts Asians and other ethnic groups in war with each other versus mm -hmm. in, in war with whites white supremacy and it, it completely like I don't know how to describe it but I was thinking about it and I was like yeah it's insane it's really harmful also because it creates like this whole blanket category around like Asians when Asian American and Asian includes southeastern Asian um, eastern Asian and like eastern Asian is usually um like way more Wait, what's the word? Oh my god, I can't even think of it. Oh, way overrepresented in like Southeastern Asian and like groups are a lot less represented, but there's a lot of disparity within different kinds of Asian identities. So it's really dangerous to say like, oh, this whole group constitutes like this quote good immigrant that like other groups should strive to be because A, it's not true and B, it's it creates this false narrative of like, we're all one and we're all like a monolith um, and it's really dangerous. And one of the things I've been having a lot of like, you know, like tough conversations with my own parents about stuff like this. And one of the things that kind of really emphasized this for me and how internalized like the, the myth of the model minority is for a lot of, especially older Asian immigrants. It's like, I was having a conversation with my mom and I was telling her like, yeah, there's a lot of vaccine inequity in Chicago. Like there's a lot of vaccine centers and resources downtown where I am, but in like the South um, and West side, it's way less prevalent. And even in a lot of like the Spanish speaking um, neighborhoods, there's not a lot of translators. And my mom was like, well, I think it's, you know, I think people who come here to America should like learn how to, how to, speak the language and I was like mom yes we're immigrants and yes we had these like really well it's weird because I'm so privileged and I literally went to school here I can speak without an accent and my mom's experience like I can't even touch on how difficult it must have been to come here when she was 36 um, and raise two kids um but I could see from her response, I was thinking about it. And I think it is a lot of like those internalized feelings of like um, the model minority myth and this idea that you should. And I don't think she really did have a choice. Like if you're like raising your kids in a foreign country and you just want them to succeed, like especially my mom, like she didn't have a lot of financial agency and autonomy. Like so she she really didn't have the privilege of like, you know, like thinking about how, th how things could have been different, like how she could have like stood up to oppressions and stuff uh, that other groups were seeing. But 
like her comment it made me just think about how like messed up the, the myth of the model minority is because like I'm sure she didn't mean it in a bad way but I was like that's a lot of internalized feelings of like oh Asian Americans are held up as this like group of like this is what you should be but you see like as soon as things go south like we are thrown under the bus like a lot of people have no problem saying oh it's the Chinese virus it's the whatever and blaming Asian Americans as soon as they're it's convenient for them to be a scapegoat um so it was really interesting to hear that um yeah I I think I'm like really I see such a generational shift between my parents and I um and even after the Atlanta shootings I went to this rally in Chicago for like stop Asian hate. And one of the things that stood out to me the most was a lot of people my age were obviously very angry and emotional and really like, we want justice, we want equality, this is so wrong. And a lot of the older Asian people that I had seen in the crowd were very like peaceful and more so quiet. And I think that was really representative of like a generational cultural difference um, which I thought was really interesting. And I saw a lot of like my parents in those older people in the crowd. That is interesting. All right, so I'll go back to, to school then. So whenever you were at school, you took this class and this was like one of the first times that you were learning learning about these things, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it was kind of, it was really eye-opening because I was like, wow, there's so many things that we don't learn about and are so internalized and like completely shape our worldview. And like, I need to be more careful about like, for example, like the news that I'm consuming and like thinking about like, okay, well, are there any other incentives behind this like piece of information that I'm consuming? Like, what do they want me to believe? Um, and yeah, it really, really, really helped me think more about like race and power and kind of sparked my interest in like exploring that even within my own life. Absolutely. I think about that a lot too, because people are really quick to repost things on Instagram or retweet things on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, these, like, I, I think, yes, a lot of them are credible, but a lot of people also aren't looking into like the backgrounds, like you said, like, mm-hmm. unfortunately, there's people with ill intentions these days. Um, mm-hmm. So it's definitely important. But do you do you have any resources that you'd recommend for um, like good news sources or anything like that? It's okay if you don't too. Um, honestly, I follow a lot of um, I follow a lot of accounts on Instagram that I think are pretty credible like for um especially in terms of like Asian and intersectional solidarity in that space I follow uh this account called Red Cannery Song mm-hmm. R-E-Ed R-E-Ed oh my god R-E-D-C-A-N-A-R-Y-S-O-N-G I'll text you these two um and we can put them I'll put them in the description for anyone that's listening yeah um and a couple other like Actually, yeah, my, my Instagram feed is, like, mostly, mostly, um, like, accounts like that, but, because I think, I think you're 
we are obviously like a sum of our experiences, but our experiences are largely determined by who we surround ourselves with, right? And that's even more true now that we live in this digital age where we can virtually surround ourselves with the opinions and people that agree with us. And it becomes easier and easier for us to become very much so in our own bubble of information or misinformation. Yeah, absolutely. Not to change the subject or anything, but I do want to ask, because I know that you, whenever you were at school, you did biochem? No. <laughs> I, I studied <laughs> physics and philosophy. <laughs> I've never taken a biochem class. I thought you were in some type of engineering. Physics. I, I did physics and philosophy. That's what it was. It was physics. Sorry. <laughs> Close. Close. Yeah, honestly, Close, I, I fucking hate math. I'm really bad with numbers. I don't know why I studied physics, but it was interesting, I think. Yeah, why did you, why did you choose physics? Honestly, so I went in pre-med because, oh, this is a whole nother part of my <laughs> cultural identity crisis. I really thought I was going to be a doctor because all of my family friends are doctors and for me, from a very young age, I think that was my understanding of success. Um, so I was like, oh, yeah, of course, I'm going to be a doctor. And then I failed out of chem two. I got a 33% on the test. And I was like, oh, shit, this is why they call these classes weed out classes to weed out people like me. Um, but then I honestly don't even remember how I picked physics. But I was like, I would definitely want to stay in STEM. Um, but I don't know if I really want to do engineering. I definitely am not going to do like chem. That's hard. And so I think I don't I honestly don't even know. I really think I was just like physics seems cool. Let's just go with this and see see how it goes. That's not something to be embarrassed about. I just want you to know. I feel like most people were in boat, like they couldn't give you they couldn't give a answer. And that's like kind of what I like to point out is and especially for anyone that's listening that maybe is going into college or something like really think about it and take some time to think about it like if you need to take mm-hmm. the year off and your family supports that I think that's if I could go back that's definitely something I would do yeah oh my gosh my roommate and I were just thinking about like wait maybe it wasn't my roommate my friend Caitlin and I were just talking about like fuck I wish I would have taken a gap year right. between high school and college that would have been so and like done something really cool like travel totally travel do some I wish there was more I know it's they have some in Europe because I remember I was doing research about this in school um for a rhetoric class I had to take (laughs) I was giving a speech on why like people should take a gap year and in they actually have programs out of high school like structured programs that are so normal to take a year off in between wow yeah, it gives, it lets you dabble in, it's kind of like an internship. Dabble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it lets you dabble in like a few different areas for an entire year where you get hands-on experience in different jobs that you pick, which wow. is so cool. Like That's super interesting. Right? I'm just like, mm-hmm. why? it's always such a race here. And like, yeah, I don't know. There's, I wish I could go back for sure, but it's hard. Yeah. So you're all done with your master's, right? Or are you? I am. I graduated in May. Okay, right. Congrats. Um, Thank you. <laughs> and so since then, what what have you been up to? 
I am a product marketing manager at a tech startup in Chicago, and I'm also a freelance writer. Um, yeah, so that's what I do. I live in Chicago, um, and I've been at this full-time position since last June, and I started freelancing. I started freelancing last November. Wait, actually, I want to go back to before that when you graduated. Yeah your master's mm-hmm. where were you at in terms of like what you wanted to do like how'd you navigate your job search oh my gosh this I job search was oh, a mess okay so in the beginning of grad school I was like I'm gonna move to Tokyo everyone all of my friends if you asked me if you ask them how my job search was they will be like Risa was literally all over the place I interviewed with this I went to this job fair in Boston in like September or something for it's like jobs in Japan and I had so I had like eight final interviews and I didn't get any of the jobs and I think they knew that I just really wanted to work in Japan and I really didn't care about any of the jobs that I was interviewing for like one of them was for like a bus company another one was like an engineering position that I realized like midway through the interview that I was so underqualified for it and I told them and I was like I'm just gonna stop this now because this is not gonna work um and there were so many interview horror stories like I remember one of the interviews it's like leading up to the event you have to do all these virtual interviews um which I guess is good practice for the world we live in now I did not know at the time but um and then you only do final final interviews like at the place um and one of them was like I was wearing this really nice silk shirt um, and I was kind of in the dark and this guy was like straight up asked me if I was wearing pajamas. I was like, that is so rude. Why would you say that? And then I was self-conscious the entire interview as I should be. Um, But so yeah, that was like a mega failure. And then I actually got an offer in November with a non-Japanese company um, and it was for like a software engineering rotational program and I was gonna I was gonna accept it but like in the back of my head I knew that I didn't want to be a software engineer and I knew that I wouldn't be good at it because I'm not a very like I'm just not that kind of person and I knew that Um, but it was really hard because I didn't have any other options And there were people telling me like, oh, that's a really good job. You know, like that's, that's what you, that could make you happy. And I'm like, fuck, I don't know what would make me happy, but I eventually turned it down. And then I had no other leads until April mid pandemic. Um, And then this company that I think that, yeah, the COO actually is a Notre Dame grad and they recruit pretty heavily from our program, Uh, but things worked out and I interviewed for a product marketing manager role and I actually really, really, really enjoy what I do and I love the role. So it was, I had zero direction the whole time, but I like on the other side of it, I was like, wow, I got really lucky and it worked out and yeah, now I'm here. Wait, that's (laughs) so funny that the guy said that. Wait, so he he was interviewing you and he said, he was like are you wearing a like pajama set and then oh my god my Japanese is horrible it's not bad but it's like it's really not great and one of the interviewers literally was like okay so we're gonna do an English Japanese role play 
where <laughs> you act like the associate and I act like the client and she literally like holds up an invisible phone with her fingers and she's like pretending to be a client and my dumbass, I literally blanked. So I just said everything in a Japanese accent. Like I literally just spoke English in a Japanese accent. Um, and it was so embarrassing because I was like, can I please stop? Like, this is so embarrassing. And the lady on the other side was like, no, just keep going, keep going. <laughs> and it was just like, oh my God, it was so bad. The entire experience. Oh, also, <laughs> also I flew to the fucking job fair and my friend Emily actually from PC I was staying at her house Mm. uh I was staying at her place uh throughout like it was like a three-day event and I get to her house and she had fallen asleep so I slept outside her door till 5 a.m and then I had to interview from like 8 a.m so that whole experience was a disaster I know. I it was like my most... job search was bad. Like, <laughs> that's fucking horrible. Yeah, it was insane. I was like, you know what? This is just not for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. It was like a very typical classic research experience. Hey, well, I'm sure now I I don't know. I could just be making this up, but at least for me, like it was comical after how horrible my interviews would yeah. go that it just started to become like, you know, I know yeah. I, I don't even care. Like it is. What yeah, it is. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I hear you. <laughs> Guys, Risa just, her screen just left. <laughs> oh my God. Wait, sorry. Did that? <laughs> Risa, I'm dead. I go, guys. Risa just exited. (laughs) 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 I do this stupid thing on my phone where I try to (laughs) try to limit my screen time. (laughs) And so it like automatically closes out of all of my apps at 7 p.m. And I was like, oh. I literally said, oh, as it was closing out, I was like, oh, shit, I really hope all of that recorded. So funny. Yeah, no, we're good. It got everything. It's still going. <laughs> so oh, my God. Yeah, no, I didn't just peace out. An Irish back. goodbye. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm back. So that's hilarious. Oh, my God. But I wanted to ask you, when it comes to interviews, if you could give anyone advice going into an interview what would it be um I'm gonna give you not one but two pieces of advice first one I am a LinkedIn ho I will say it so loud and clear for the people in the back like I love LinkedIn and I love creeping on LinkedIn and that is my favorite thing to do ever um so I think before you even apply I would try to have like two or three informational interviews with people Um, at the company so just like creep on try to try to like talk to someone in the company that has a similar or like is in the department or like role that you want and just learn about what it's like to work there and then like best case scenario they'll be like oh yeah you can put me down as a reference um, because that always helps Um, and then second just do your research like learn about you know like what what markets the company that you're looking at is in like 
their past successes, like have some really good questions about their organization uh, that you're genuinely interested in. Um, and yeah, just be yourself. But preparation is key, I think. How do you reach out to people? First of all, there's like a 300 character limit. So I'm always looking for ways to minimize. Like, I'm like, I need to use as many contractions and like small words as possible. <laughs> I'm like, will they think lowly of me if I don't put this period in? Cause I can't fit it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm always kind of just like, I'll either say like, hi or Hey blank. Um, and then I'll honestly just look at their experience and like reach out to people who genuinely interest me. So I'll be like, Hey, I see that you working here. I'm really interested in learning more about the company. I think it's really cool. Mm-hmm. Can I have 15 minutes of your time to chat? Um, and then like 95% will ghost me, but that 5% is so clutch. Um, and that's why you just got to reach out to a lot of people because probably, and a lot of people I think don't even see like the LinkedIn message till like months later and, or don't check their LinkedIn crazy amounts. Uh, so like, don't take it personally if they don't respond, but yeah, I just, I try to keep it casual because, and I think also, um, what I think is like, I think people like it when they reach out because it's kind of flattering, you know? You're saying like, oh, you're kind of an expert in this and I want to pick your brain. Um, So like not being intimidated and not being afraid to like, quote, sound stupid and stuff. When you were looking for a job, how did you determine, how did you determine what type of company you'd want want to work for? Not even like what you wanted to Mm. bring, but that that environment we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Because I noticed with you, you, you love entrepreneurial environment yeah I do I do and I think that's something that I learned a lot about myself in grad school um I always kind of knew that I was a generalist like I wasn't going to be those people who are hyper focused on one thing and just like a subject matter expert like even in undergrad I was really interested in philosophy and physics and humanities as well as like stem and I think I was I never was like oh I'm gonna be like that girl who's really going to be a physicist. And I wasn't going to be like that philosopher. I don't know why I'm making these no- like voices. That's weird. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but anyways, I, I kind of like really embraced that in grad school. And at times it was all over the place and made it hard for me to narrow down. Because um, if you're a generalist and you want to be good at everything, like you have to at some point realize you're not going to be good at everything. You need to narrow down the search a little bit. So I think, I think actually, yeah, undergrad made me a generalist and grad school made me narrow down my generalist options. Um, And at the end of the day, I realized I like environments that allow me to learn a lot of different things. Don't confine me to a specific role and specific tasks, but do have some sort of structure. And I realized like that is what a growth stage startup is a lot of the times like allows you to work very um, closely with other teams and other people and like dive into initiatives. But um, it's not like too, too early of a startup where there's just like no structure at all. Mm-hmm. Can you um, talk about what working in a startup environment like specifically is like? Yeah. Like, the type of role you went into and the things that you had to mm-hmm. do? Yes. Yeah, so I'm a product marketing manager. Um, our company is a telecom startup 
and we sell SMS and voice APIs. Look at me using all these buzzwords. Um, but <laughs> anyways, my main, uh, my main responsibility is to own the go-to-market strategy for two of our five core products. And what that means is kind of like determining the product direction and owning like the external communications and how we position our product to be the prime solution for the customer segments that we are trying to target. So like understanding our customer, translating that into like product positioning and messaging, and then working with our product manager, who's like a little bit more of the technical side to figure out how we want to like build and launch features and products that fit kind of these customer needs. So it's very at the intersection of like understanding technology and understanding how to explain it in a way that customers are like, oh yeah, that's what I need. But also understanding customers and really figuring out what they need um, and what they're looking for in a product and like translating those insights into like an overarching strategy. Wow. That's really cool, Reese. So you're kind of Thank on both you. ends. You have to be the bridge in between the, mm -hmm. so do you have multiple clients or? Yeah. So we serve like, <clears throat> we sell to like enterprises and also like smaller hobbyists who use our product for like personal projects. So we kind of have to understand what like enterprise customers want and need in our product and like what our competitors are offering and what like market trends are moving towards and be able to kind of offer something that answers to those needs. Gotcha. So would you say that this role, like working at this company, you have to do? Mm -hmm. The reason why I'm saying this is because <clears throat> I've noticed that a smaller company, like there's just no job description that could fill what yeah. like, the role <laughs> is. Like you literally yes. have so many different things that you need to do. Yeah, I think like, I think it is a lot of like strategy work, copywriting and like research. Um, if I had to like reduce it into three things, but it's really interesting because there's not really like, there are obviously like squads, like I'm not an engineer. I'm, I'm not, <laughs> um, but I can like pick the engineer's brain and be like, Hey, how does this work? Like, can you explain this a little bit to me? Like, I'm really interested in learning more about this. Or I can like go to the UX designer and say, Hey, I'm like really interested in learning more about how you reduce like users friction points while they're navigating through our web pages or are like customer facing portals. So like, I want to work on this initiative with you or like, is there a way that I could learn more about this? And there's a lot of opportunity for, for growth like even within areas that aren't traditionally thought of as like my role mm -hmm. and that's like something that really excites me and I hope that I have that kind of dynamic at any job that I work at yeah absolutely I think I know for myself too at least it's the type of role that keeps me interested it keeps mm -hmm. me like subconsciously it's like yes it's a lot of work and it can be overwhelming at times to like feel yes. like you have an arm going <laughs> direction. but it's like yeah if it wasn't like that I'd probably be waiting till five o'clock every day you know what I mean right yeah it's really exciting I like things that are force me to like keep me on my toes and like I like having a lot of different projects that I'm working on yeah absolutely 
All right, I have to end this episode abruptly because Reese is going to come back on. Um, we have so much more to talk about together. One big topic coming up is definitely um, our own personal struggles with body image. Any advice she has to share, because I know that's a topic we both resonated with and chatted with for probably an hour after this episode was recorded. Um, so we're definitely going to be recording another episode, but I hope you guys enjoyed. guys that will be it for this episode thank you so much for listening and don't forget to stay shaky